Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome to BespokeCast. My name is George Perks. I'm the macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. This week, we've got a great conversation with George Lovatas of Upslope Capital Management. But before we get going with that, I need to read a quick disclaimer on behalf of him and Upslope. Upslope Capital Management, LLC, is a Colorado registered investment advisor. Nothing discussed should be construed as personalized investment advice. Upslope and its clients may hold positions and securities mentioned. These positions may change, and Upslope accepts no responsibility to update its commentary about them. Securities mentioned may not be representative of overall performance for Upslope and its clients. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Welcome to our latest episode of Bespoke Cast. This week, we're thrilled to have George Lovatis of Upslope Capital Management on to talk about his uh, approach to the equity markets. George is a, a long, short manager who lives in the Denver region, and we're thrilled to have him on. Uh, George, welcome to Bespoke Cast. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you, George. Happy to be here. So we always like to start with a little bit of a background on who we're talking to and um, how they sort of got to their current seat. Um, so it'd be great to hear from you sort of your life story, where you grew up and, and where you went to college. Sure. So I um, I actually grew up in Los Angeles, um, eventually went to boarding school back in New Jersey, um, always sort of felt like more of an East Coast person, uh, ironically. Um, and then eventually went to college at Georgetown, uh, where I was a Russian major, um, also studied a bit of business there. Um, and then from Georgetown, I uh, went to work for a city group, uh, starting in 2004, uh, in a, on a securitization team. Um, so really at, at that point, you know, just was interested in wall street generally, didn't, didn't quite know where I wanted to go yet, but, um, you know, wanted to do something that was, had a good mix of, uh, quantitative and qualitative stuff. And that that was one of the sort of assembly line securitization groups in Wall Street that was that was busy creating lots of <laughs> um, debt instruments, right, during the sort of run up to the global crisis. So our group had, uh, we had a couple key products. One was con, uh, ABCP conduit securitization, so asset-backed commercial paper, um, which was a, a, actually a pretty plain vanilla product in some ways. Um, and then we had another much more esoteric product um, that actually involved securitizing uh, mutual fund 12B1 fees. Oh, wow. That That is out there. <laughs> I've never <laughs> yep. even heard of that being done before. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was proprietary to Citigroup. Um, so just for people that aren't familiar, the asset-backed commercial paper markets is basically um, – very uh, short-term uh, debt would be issued by conduits that would hold um, a sort of a diversified set of liabilities um, issued by companies like like industrial companies, for instance, financing different parts of their uh, capital base, um, that sort of thing. You can do it with mortgages. You can do it with other stuff as well. Um, not terribly complicated, and, and for most of the time, it, it's worked pretty well as a structure. Um, in the crisis, when GE was unable to roll its commercial paper, that's sort of what they were talking about, is, is, is that sort of same approach. Um, that's right, right, George? Yep, yeah. exactly. Cool. So uh, you were at City, um, and you uh, eventually decided to go to business school. Is that correct? How did that sort of play yep. out? Yeah, so I, I spent a couple of years in that securitization group. Um, and like I said, coming at it as a having been a Russian major, it was a good experience getting some of the, the more quantitative aspect of Wall Street. Um, but it was a pretty, for me at least, it was a pretty niche product um, and knew pretty quickly that it wasn't something I wanted to do forever. Um, so I eventually went 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 over to uh, to business school at University of Chicago, um, starting actually in in 2008. Um, nice timing. And went into it. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know I went into it with the plan of coming out the other side, uh, working for a hedge fund. So you know not a total career shift, but definitely a shift. And um, you know quickly realized 
uh, or at least concluded at that time that that probably wasn't going to happen. Um, so I ended up going into investment banking for a few years before getting back on track with the longer term goal. And how did you transition from investment banking to you were you were at another firm for a while um, yep. and then and now you're basically on your own. Is that correct with Upslope? Yep, exactly. So I when I left when I graduated from business school in 2010, um, I went and joined uh, BMO Capital Markets in New York in investment banking. Um, I did that for about four years and then um, kind of raised my hand and, and asked to be switched into the equity research group, um, which was a bit of an unusual switch, you know, given where I was in my career, you know, four years out of business school and, and investment banking. Um, but it was something I really wanted to do. And there was a, a great opportunity that that came up with uh, BMO had just hired a, you know, one of the top ranked analysts um, actually covering the paper and packaging sector. Um, so I was fortunate to join his team. Um, so I did that for about a year and then, um, you know, quick, quickly moved out to, uh, to Denver and joined a small hedge fund out here, uh, where I was at for two years before launching on my own. BMO is a really interesting firm, Canadian firm. They've been quite aggressive expanding some stuff in the U S. Um, did you ever, uh, know, Bo uh, Bob Wetnall while you were there, the, uh, housing analyst at BMO? I did not, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, he's he, he's a great guy. I, I interviewed for a job with him back in the day, and he's just one of these characters that you don't think still exist. You know, the finance industry <laughs> has this reputation now of being all about algos and like and like you know very um, dry and quantitative and and not really some of the flair that there used to be. And mm -hmm. Bob is great because he's just full of personality and and a very dynamic character. So anyhow, that 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 BMO Equity Research Group is interesting. Um, so you've been you you were at uh, the small hedge fund out in the Denver area. Area, um, and then just decided to sort of strike out on your own. What, what was your thought process around that career shift? Yeah, so I mean, it, it was something that had been on my radar. You know, the idea of starting a fund on my own uh, for for a long time. Um, and I'd say after about a year at the hedge fund, um, you know, I, I asked the guys there if I could if I could raise some friends and family money and and frankly just get a track record started. Um, so I was fortunate to have done that for a year before I left the fund. Um, and then, um, you know, after a year of doing that officially sort of spun out on my own and, and began raising additional money. So you're open to outside investors of all types. Uh, what's the structure that you operate under? Are you, an, an actual independent legal entity or do you do separately managed accounts? How does that work? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I did something a little different. Um, it's funny. I get two reactions when I tell people about the structure. Uh, one, some people love it and think it makes perfect sense. And then the other, you know, people that are more familiar with you know, the traditional GPLP hedge fund structure, um, they have no idea what I'm talking about and don't understand why anybody would do that. <laughs> um, so my, my structure is uh, separately managed accounts only. Um, you know, I tried to be as thoughtful as I could about setting up the business and, you know, aligning incentives and, and you know, doing, doing as best as I can by, by my clients. Um, so I wanted to have, you know, full transparency, custody of assets with a third party, um, you know, a good fee structure and, um, you know, I, frankly, better liquidity, I think, than than your traditional hedge fund. Yeah, I think, you know, we so Bespoke um, manages uh, outside money through an RIA uh, business that we have. And um, the third party um, custodianship is really big. Like that is a small thing. It seems like if you're, you know, if you're a, a large institutional investor, this may not be something you think about much, but for folks that have, you know, much more, their much higher percentage of their net worth tied up with a single manager, that can be like a really big deal that gives people sort of a security blanket and know like, okay, well, you know, this manager may not do like the best job ever. Like, you know, maybe he'll be good, maybe he won't, or maybe, you know, she'll crush it or maybe she'll underperform, whatever. Um, but at least I know where my money is. Like, at least I can see what's happening and I have full control of that. If I want to step in tomorrow and just say, I'm done, it's, it's, it's easy for people to do that. Um, you know, not that we, we, I don't think ever had someone do that, but people like to know that sort of thing. So that, that's a big thing, I think, in, in that, in that, um, structure. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so have things been going well? Has it been a successful run for you in terms of getting things off the ground? I mean, your website's still up, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's early. Um, you know that so far the year has gone well performance wise but it's it's just a year um and certainly has had its ups and downs um you know i think it's it's uh in a lot of ways it's a dream job for me i mean i i 
I wake up, uh, barely make it to my alarm at 4.30 most mornings and jump out of bed and, and I'm excited to get going on the day. Um, I think one of the surprising things for me, I, I've a lot of people have told me and given me advice, you know, make sure you allocate um, specific time to marketing and fundraising and, you know, told me about how, how, uh, how tough that can be. And I think one of the surprising things for me has been that it's, I've actually, despite being much more of an introverted person, I, I've actually enjoyed the marketing aspect of it quite a bit. Um, you know, I think just being someone that's fully invested in the product myself and really believes in it. And, um, and obviously it's, it's my own, um, it makes it a lot easier to talk to people about it and, you know, for me, it, it's it's a fun conversation. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest thing is being enthusiastic and and having some skin in the game. I mean, that makes it a lot easier to have some of these conversations. Which, if you were just on someone else's salary, might be sound you know kind of like drudgery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about your investment process. So you know, when we were talking before you came on, um, I sort of thought the one liner on you would be concentrated long short. Um, would you agree with that? Disagree with that? Talk a little bit at a high level about what it is that you do. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's the, definitely the one liner. I, I think, you know, going into a little more detail, I'd say there, there's some nuance. So I, it's definitely concentrated long, short, concentrated on the long side, more so than the short side. Um, I do focus primarily on small and mid caps. Um, you know, about two thirds of the portfolio is mid cap and you know, a, a healthy chunk small, and then just a, a small minority is in large caps. Um, Why is that? Why do you focus on the smaller cap I've, side of things? Um, I, I've just found, I think, you know, especially for someone of my size, um, the opportunities are better there. Companies in, in, you know, in the small and mid cap space, I think, in general, are, are at a better place in terms of their long term growth potential. Um, so and, and just frankly, it's, it's, it's been an area that I've played in for a while, so I'm, I'm more familiar with a lot of the names. Yeah, it seems like there's some liquidity premiums to capture too and, and sort of some of the more traditional um, sources of alpha that have existed over the years still apply mm-hmm. you know, in places where there's less sunlight on them. So that, that, that definitely makes some sense. So um, yeah. in terms of you know, your gross versus net exposures, um, are you, you know, how, how big are you running on the short side versus the long side? Are you running, you know, 20% short, 80% short? It's sound, I wouldn't assume 80% short yeah. based on what you just said, but <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty conservative in terms of gross. So I, I, I like to, to think of it in terms of, so my gross exposure t- tends to range between 75 and 125. Um, more typically, you know, right in the middle of that. And, and frankly, even a little lower. Um, and then on the net side, you know, I'd say it's 25 to 75 is how I think about it. But again, pretty, pretty much most of the time I'm, I'm right in the middle of that, you know, 40, 50% net, net long. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty manageable. And I think one thing that people tend to misunderstand about shorting is that, um, most stocks tend to go up. So, you know, it, it, the best, the best shorts in the world kind of don't outperform the market at all, or kind of don't generate much absolute return at all. It's more like, you know, mm-hmm. so being 80% short all the time or whatever it is, like <laughs> just doesn't work. So, I mean, I, I think you know, yeah. it's a pretty defensible process. Um, as far as concentration goes, so, you know, you would describe yourself as concentrated. You know, I know just from talking to you and sort of following you a little bit, like I, I know it's, it's pretty concentrated, but um, how, specifically how concentrated, like what's the most names you would ever have, you know, on the long side and on the short side versus the least like kind of a range there? I, so I, I, I guess the way I think about it is I have typically 10 longs and 10 shorts. Um, and then I, I bucket the longs into a couple categories and depending on which category we're talking about, I'm comfortable going up to, um, you know, up to frankly a double digit percentage uh, in terms of exposure to a single name. Um, and uh, on the short side, like I said, much much more conservative. I, I you know, five percent is my absolute maximum for a short position, um, and they tend to be more like two percent. Right. And do you, in in terms of portfolio construction, do you sort of think from a top down perspective at all, or is it entirely like, okay, like here's a company I think is overvalued, undervalued, however you want to describe it, like the business, don't like the business, whatever your impetus for getting into a trade is. 
you know, and, and sort of just go from there so that you can end up with some sort of overweights or underweights relative to the broad market at the sector level or in terms of macro. I really do try to focus as much as possible on having a bottom up process, you know, looking at individual names and looking what I think are, you know, what, what I think is interesting. Um, obviously, you know, I think if you're involved in the markets, it's awfully hard not to have some bias in terms of what you think is going on in the macro picture. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's not a coincidence that, you know, my biggest position is a pretty conservative, um, you know, what I consider pretty cheap staple type name. Um, you know, I, I, I'm generally somewhat cautious on, on, you know, where I think markets are. Um, but in general, that's not guiding the overall portfolio construction. What about uh, other risk characteristics? So do you think at all about liquidity as in like, okay, well, I've got, you know, four longs that are already at, you know, in sub 500 million market cap, I just can't put any more liquidity risk on the table here. I need something that's a little bit easier to get in and out of should need be. Uh, not really, to be honest. I, I, I'd i say in the very early days of the strategy, I had a third. So I mentioned before, I have two buckets on the long side. Um, first, what I'd call core holdings. So they're what I consider, you know, very high quality names that I could be potential forever, or at least multi-year holdings. Um, and those are names I'm comfortable sizing up quite a bit. And then I have more tactical holdings, which are pretty good quality companies, but but not as durable long term, in my opinion. Uh, you know, you can think of like a restaurant, for example, where consumer taste can change, even if it's well managed. And you just never know what's going to happen five, 10 years down the road. Um, so initially, I had a third bucket, which was more of a special situations type bucket where I would, you know, I did invest in a couple you know, I'd say micro cap businesses. Um, and eventually I concluded after, you know, not that long, frankly, that it, it just wasn't worth the the effort on my part. Um, I wasn't comfortable sizing them up to a significant por portion of the portfolio. And, um, you know, the liquidity issue, um, it, it made the whole liquidity aspect of the portfolio a lot less clean than it would be without them. Right. Uh, do you do you use options at all to sort of get the optimal risk exposure, or are you strictly just delta one long short? That's it. I'd say ninety nine percent of the time strictly long short equity, um, but I you know I have the ability to to do options or warrants, um, you know, and at some point uh, uh, you know I'm sure I'll take advantage of that ability. Um, but the, the vast majority of the time, just strictly stocks. And what's your thought process for, for not playing in derivatives as much, not, not to you know apply a wrong or right to it, just curious <laughs> what, what your thinking is there? Mostly, I, I know from my own personal experience over the years, just managing my, managing my own money, um, you know, I've lost, it's, it's almost always been a bad decision to go, to go the derivative route for me instead of just <laughs> the straight stock. Um, you know, I, I think it's easy to get hung up on crafting a, a clever trade idea um you know when when you start involving derivatives at least for me um and you know lose sight of the bigger picture yeah i mean the thing about derivatives is they're complicated so <laughs> it's like it's it's a lot easier to like come up with like a smart trade idea that looks smart and miss a risk than it is to <laughs> you know think about all of the not that you can't think about all the rest but to you know get it fully digested yep so it would be really great to talk about some of the stocks you've been involved with recently. Um, you on your website, um, which is a, it's a great website actually, because it, there's a couple resources on there that I think anybody could get some interesting use out of. Um, but and, and we'll link to all this in the description of the podcast and on the website. But um, in your website, you've got a, a long pitch on uh, Salvatore Ferragamo, uh, which is a really interesting. I mean, it's a essentially a fashion house. Um, so it would be interesting to talk about yep. that from the long side. And then you sure. uh, had a short in Blue Apron um, recently that that did quite well. And I realized, you know, per your Q3 letter, you're out of the position now because it hit your target. But it would be interesting to talk about that um, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, but yeah, so do you want to take either one of those to start with either one? Sure. Yeah. So on on Ferragamo, um, you know, so you you've read the pitch, but but sort of high level. Um, obviously, Ferragamo is a pretty storied fashion house, um, started out in women's shoes and over the years diversified into to men's shoes and, and leather goods and, and a bunch of other areas. Today, it's about 40% shoes and 40% leather goods and then other miscellaneous apparel, you know, men's ties and fragrances and stuff like that. Um, so I, I had spent 
probably over the last year, given everything going on in you know the retail world, I'd been looking for a an interesting, just call it retail or you know our consumer idea um, along these lines, and eventually came around to after going through a bunch of other names and kind of throwing them in the trash, um, came around to Ferragamo, um, where I I think there's some some interesting stuff happening, and you know I think it's I, I can't stress enough that I think I'm I'm early here and and I'm you know my position is sized that way um, because I do think I'm early, but they so they have essentially cleaned house, um, brought in entirely new management team, entirely new design team. Um, the company went public several years ago. And, um, before they, before they brought in this new management team, the prior team was focused mostly on just cost cutting and, and not particularly reinvesting in the brand and the product. Um, so the, the company really fell behind a lot of its luxury peers. Um, so I, I like it because it's, well, it's not, optically cheap on, you know, definitely not 2017 and probably not 2018 estimates. Um, I think if the management team that's come in and the new design team come in, that came in, if if they do what they say they're going to do, the stock is going to look extremely cheap, you know, one, two, three years from now. Um, they're, the management team is focusing on a number of what I think are, are pretty obvious things to do that the previous team did not, um, you know, focusing on same store sales, uh, improving the customer experience in the stores and just, just revitalizing the brand in general. Um, so I think if they, if they do all those things, the stock will work really well. Um, and I think if they don't, I think, you know, this, this is a company who has a great physical store base. So they have almost, you know, about 700 stores around the world with one of the best presences in Asia. Um, and then they own really the, the premier design database for for footwear you know luxury footwear um so i think despite what you know some of the ferragamo family members have said recently i think if the management team doesn't execute on its plans to turn around the business it's hard not to see um you know ferragamo quickly becoming a target for one of the uh, the multi-brand luxury houses it's really interesting too how you approach this this um pitch because you you take not only like a global and and sort of a industry level view um so okay we like the asia exposure we're very conscious of the fact that a lot of this spending is coming from tourists um but also it's like okay well retail outlets physical retail outlets are actually like you know that's a positive not a negative um because potentially lot, yeah well you know you're view, you're viewing it as a as a potential positive as opposed to oh well retail's dead right like that's that's interesting in that um case too mm -hmm. and i you know there's also this great slide here where you're taking uh online search interest and you're saying okay well search interest is really picking up in some stuff that should translate to you know this brand value to activity from consumers here and you know, we haven't seen that flow through in, in recent reporting quite yet because it'll come in a leg, yeah. but this looks attractive. Um, that That's like a really cool way of looking at, at what the consumer is doing. Do you do that a lot? Like look at sort of non-traditional metrics like that, um, you know, that maybe should become traditional? Uh, you know, to be honest, I don't. I think for Ferragamo, I thought it was, it was a lot more appropriate because it's a, just given the nature of fashion, you figure that that online search interest is, is probably a, a good indicator um you know we'll, we'll see if it if it plays out that way and if if the interest keeps up um they they so they are one thing i didn't mention you know obviously i mentioned that i'm i'm early on the pitch but um specifically they're really rolling out their new product um really first half of next year um so i'm i'm hopeful that you know there's some early interest in what they're going to put out and and then once once they actually roll it out, uh, it, it does well in the stores. Also notable that the Ferragamo uh, Financieria family uh, office owns 58% of the, the float, which is, and then yes. another 11% yep. are individual families, which, you know, that's that's a lot. So it's, it's an interesting sort of like, oh, well, you know, these guys are sort of owner operators with like a sense around the business that's that goes beyond just dollars and cents that, you know, that, that's a, that can be a really good thing. Um, obviously, kind of depends. But um, it's just so anyhow, yeah. really interesting um, 
long pitch. Um, that's on uh, George's website website at upslopecapital.com, and, and we'll lo- we'll link to that that as well. Um, the short side, um, you had talked about, or we'd love we'd love to talk about Blue Apron. Sure. Um, it's it's really funny, like seeing some of these um, new tech businesses sort of, you know, have first contact with reality in the public markets, and and Blue Apron and Snap are probably the best examples. Um, just not what they were hoping for as far as debuts go. Um, so talk to us about Blue Apron and about and about that business and what you know sort of drove your thinking around why it was not an attractive thing to to for investors sure so i I would say you know my my thesis on blue apron was pretty simple in a lot of ways um first it was obvious looking at the you know their s1 um a lot of their key performance indicators a lot of the business metrics were not going in the right direction um you know the the business still wasn't profitable or you know still didn't have positive free cash flow um and then a lot of these other indicators um you know customer churn and, and whatnot, um, were, were not looking good. But I'd say at a, at a higher level, what, what attracted me to the Blue Apron short initially and, and what gave me confidence in it um, was, you know, so my my background, obviously I spent a few years in investment banking. Um, and I've, I just, you could just get the sense that this was a, an IPO that was being forced through at an inopportune time. Um, and to me, that that said so much about where the business was headed that you know you have this business that is supposedly a you know a hyper growth business, um, and and despite the the negative press around it before the IPO and um, you know despite potentially choppy markets that they were launching into, they they still went ahead and just kind of forced the IPO through. Um, so when I when I see a situation like that where there's an IPO that looks like it's really being jammed through, um, I'd say there are a few things that give me more confidence in shorting a company than than that dynamic and that, i'd say that was that was a, a lot of what was at play here so we started uh, my partner and i started getting hello fresh a couple of weeks ago and it's funny because i i look at the i the, at the product and the product mm-hmm. is great like it really you know if you want to expand your repertoire in the kitchen a little bit i cook a lot like without recipes and you know, I, I'm pretty accomplished in the kitchen as far as day-to-day meal prep goes, but I still love it because it take you know, it exposes you to some new stuff. Everything comes exactly in the portions you need it. Like it just takes a lot of thinking out. It's no trip to the grocery store. Um, it seems like there's a really great value proposition for the consumer there. Um, the problem though, is that it's treated as this tech-driven business when in reality it's a low-margin grocery business, it seems like. Like, you know, you can get a little bit of, and this is true for Blue Apron and HelloFresh. I mean, I consider those them basically the same thing. Um, you can get a little bit of extra margin in terms of, oh, well, we've got the best recipes or, oh, you know, we've got this branding around it and we got this sort of lifestyle component. But there's really a limit to how far that can go. And it's like, you know, I, I, I was thinking I, I could see this business being really durable, really successful in the long run in terms of staying power, but that doesn't necessarily make it one you want to own. Can you talk a little bit about the divergence between the sort of underlying, you know, consumer offering and sort of how it was pitched and valued? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when I looked at Blue Apron, I, I think to your point, there, there, there's a great, you know, at least for a lot of people, the, the product itself is a great product. Um, you know, we, we trialed it, I, I want to say for six months or so, uh, shortly after moving out here. Um, and we, we liked it, but it was for various reasons we decided to, to move on. Um, you know, but, but I think it's, it's potentially a great product, but it, they, the way I looked at it was they had very little in terms of sustainable competitive, competitive advantages. Um, it's a, as you mentioned, you know, sort of pitched as this tech type business, but in reality, it's, it, it's a pretty labor-intensive, um, logistics-intensive business where you have people that have to physically package these, chop and package the, these these ingredients and and mail them off. And um, you know it, it's it's labor-intensive and it's complicated and and it's it's also coincidentally easy to replicate. Um, so I think the fact that it's so replicatable, um, and you know, even though Blue Apron is is the biggest player right now, and they're still not profitable or cash flow positive, um, you know, to me makes it not an attractive business that you want to own. 
do you think that applies to other tech oriented businesses? So like I kind of think of Uber in that same way and I'm not necessarily in the majority view in thinking about Uber in the same context of, you know, relatively replicatable, labor intensive and therefore not particularly profitable and moat um, moat friendly. Um, do you would you agree with that or or do you can you think of another example of a recent tech business that you think similarly about? Um I think there are definitely some out there. I, I, I can't really think of any off the top of my head. But yeah, I mean, I think there that seems to be a bit of a theme, you know, that the focus on, um, you know, just building up scale and we'll kind of figure out the, the profitability later. Um, you know, it, delivering customer value is is important, but but it needs to be a business that's going to be around for the long term. And that doesn't seem to be the case in, in some of these situations. Right. Uh, as far as sort of risk management um, in terms of keeping track of what's going on with all the different companies that you're um, in or that you um, are looking at and sort of have a, on a watch list or have recently been involved in, like how, how, what percentage of your day is spent just sort of staying on top of all the news related to um, Ferragamo that's come out that day or, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Is it, you know, for people that aren't managing a sort of a very bottoms up portfolio in that way, um, what's your sort of time investment like on a typical name in that sense? I, I'd say it, it varies depending on, frankly, the time of year. Um, you know, so in between quarters, you know, quarter end results, it's probably, you know, 10 to 20 percent of my day. Um, you know, just keeping up with what's going on with the existing portfolio. Um, and then, you know, during earnings season, it's, it's probably the inverse. It's probably 80% of the day, um, you know, listening to earnings calls and reviewing, reviewing the transcripts and, and latest filings, looking for changes that might be subtle and, you know, not advertised. Um, and then I'm sorry, I forgot the other part of your question. Oh, just, um, I mean, that, that was pretty much it. I mean, ha, so if you're looking at a name, for instance, like Ferragamo, that, that you know, that had to come across your radar somehow. So um, did you, when you first sort of came across it, did you add it to some sort of watch list and sort of say, oh, I'll keep an eye on this. I don't need to build a full model for it right away. Um, you know, or mm -hmm. is it like, oh, this is interesting. Let me do a bunch of work on it before I even consider looking at the stock <laughs> regularly over time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, when I think about what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of it really is figuring out how to allocate time, you know, how to, if I'm interested in a company, you know, start doing the work, but figure out whether I should should keep doing the work. Um, for Ferragamo, I think, I think I added it to a watch list, you know, over a year ago, and but never really did anything with it. Um, and then, as I mentioned, you know, sort of went through a few retail, different retail names and consumer names, um, and kind of remembered that Ferragamo existed and started looking at it. And the more I looked at it, the more interesting I thought it, it seemed. And, um, you know, so just kind of kept going with it until I, I had sort of a full blown pitch ready to go um, and was comfortable starting a position. So it's a, it's a sort of organic process as opposed to a prescribed one. Yes. And yeah, I, I, I mean, I think in terms of coming up with new ideas, I have, I'd say it's, it's not, totally organic in, in that sense. You know, I, I, I have certain names that I do do look at regularly. So sectors that I've covered in the past, um, you know, the packaging sector, which I covered on in research, and then the exchange and broker sector, which I covered in banking. Um, so I do keep, keep tabs on most of the companies in those sectors. Um, and then the other, the second of, of three um, buckets, you know, for new ideas that I, that I follow, um, is you know capital markets transactions so IPOs which is how Blue Apron obviously came about um, spinoffs uh, other situations like that and then the last one which is I'd say more how Ferragamo came about is is the old uh, walking around method you know just kind of research what's interesting and and see where it takes me and and you know I, I find that that's actually a pretty good good source to a lot of ideas. Yeah, that's the walking around method is the top of your idea generation category um, <laughs> of your consolidated learnings. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little oh, bit yeah. later. But um, <laughs> can you just sort of describe what the walking around method is and, and how that differs from a stock screen? Sure. I mean, I, I no, I, I think I, to me, the classic example of, of the walking around method, um, and it, it's a quite literal example here, um, you know, I think a couple of years ago now, 
Um, I remember I was literally walking around the grocery store and came across the, you know, the, the chip and salty snacks aisle. Always and dangerous. Noticed, uh, skinny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and walked by the popcorn section, you know, the, or, the sort of trendy organic popcorn section and noticed skinny pop was on, on the shelf among, you know, a million different other types of popcorn. Um, and I hadn't given it much thought at all, but I, you know, I, looked at the popcorn on the shelf and thought to myself how I, I had just seen a headline earlier that day about the parent company of skinny pop going public and looked back at the shelf and all these other competitors. And, um, you know, sometimes the idea just hits you square in the head. Um, and so it seemed obvious to me that this was a, a potentially good short candidate, um, you know, looking at that at a literally a, just a popcorn company. Um, with few competitive advantages and tons of competition, and a sort of a and a sort of a fad product, right? Like food, food taste moves so yeah. quickly. It's just like I I pity anybody yeah. in that business because it's <laughs> like, how do you stay on top of things? Yeah, it's tough. We had mentioned the consolidated learnings document, and this is like a really you know I, in, this is a really interesting document because it's it's basically your you know sort of do's and don'ts for investing but not in any sort of like, this is the only way to do it. It's more just like, this is sort of, sort of some stuff I've learned. And I think it's a really interesting, not only in terms of transparency and and sort of you know being honest with yourself and with the people around you, but there's also a ton in here. Like you could, you know, it's only two pages long or actually it's really just a page. Um, no, it's a page and a half, no, two pages, sorry. Uh, it's two pages long, single space, which sounds like nothing, but when you sort of dive into some of these, there's, there's a lot of nuance to them and you know so where did you come up with the idea to not just keep this list but publish it and sort of put it out there for the world you know i, I don't remember exactly <laughs> to be honest um i i think it was a couple of years ago now I, I thought it was a good idea for me to write things down um you know write down what i thought were or important observations that i've i've observations and conclusions that i've made over the years um and to, to keep track of it and to figure out what, you know, updated every six months, which I, I think is what I've done. Um, and to, you know, to be thoughtful about, you know, about things changing over time and different views that I, I've changed over the, over the years. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't remember where it originally, the idea came from, but, uh, you know, I, I just think to your point, I mean, I think it's good to, I think there is some benefit for me personally to put it out there publicly. It, it helps kind of keep me honest. Um, and, uh, but I think it's also good practice for me to, you know, what, when I, when I see that I've made a mistake or, you know, changed my mind on, on one of these ideas, um, you know, I think it's important that I, that I also be transparent and, and honest with myself about changing that position. There are a few really good risk management tips in here. I mean, I think, and, and just, you know, personal, uh, risk management, not just quantitative risk management. So, um, one of the ones I love is 52. When you start getting cocky, cut back, look at wall street's wheel of fortune, um, in the intro, in the intro to capital returns. How do you know if you're getting cocky? I'm, I usually brag to my wife about something doing well in the portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great indicator. I love that one. I, uh, I mean, the, the perfect example of that over the summer, there is a position that had done really well year to date. And I remember specifically bragging to my wife about how great this this name was doing. And literally the next morning, they announced a surprise resignation of their star CFO. Um, and oh. the stock, you know, I still I still own it, um, but the stock has not been the same ever since. I, I assume that your wife knows that your conversations with her are now a contraindicator for you. <laughs> yes. Uh, she must enjoy that very much. That's, that's great. Um, the... Number 46, long uh, cash as opposed to long short is probably a better strategy for the vast majority of investors tempted to do long short over the long short over the long term. Um, you add that said right now seems like a great time from career market perspective to bone up on short skills. Um, so let's take those in turn because I think the second part of that plays into something I'd like to talk to you about with regards to the current cycle and the economic backdrop and stuff. So we'll just take the first part in isolation. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that being long and in cash as opposed to long and short is more advantageous for most investors? I, I think most, and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm uh, 
wonderful at short selling by any means. But I, you know, I think most investors are not particularly skilled at short selling. Um, and I think if if you're if if you're not going to be able to make money short selling, um, you're better off just not losing money and sitting in cash. Um, so it's a it's pretty simple. I mean, no no grand thesis behind it other than other than really that you know, frankly, short selling is very very hard. Are there any people that you think are really good short sellers that you pay a lot of attention to regularly? I mean, I think everybody would have a couple of names they would put on that list, but just curious if there are any that you think of. I mean, certainly, uh, obviously, Jim Chanos is is the big one that everybody pays attention to, and and definitely, I, I always love hearing him speak. Um, you know, I I'm I'm a big fan of uh, Roddy Boyd from uh, Surf Report. Um, you know, he he's not a short seller, but but a very interesting guy who. You know who writes on a lot of potential fraudy companies, um, but you know I, I'd say in general, you know I sort of sort of do my own thing. He's one of my fellow North Carolinians. He's over uh, Wilmington Beach, um, so yeah, oh, he yeah. Roddy Roddy does great work. He's uh, that's the Southern Investigative Reporting Foundation. If anyone's interested, at Surf Report S I R F Report on Twitter. I think um, if you're curious about catching up with him. Um, okay, so then the second part of that. Um, consolidated learning. Uh, so the first part was being long cash as opposed to long short is probably a better strategy for the vast majority of investors tend to do long short over the long term. And then you say, okay, that said, right now, and I assume this still applies now, this is something that you wrote oh, yeah. in the last couple of years. More so. Yeah. Okay. Right now seems like a great time from a career slash market perspective to bone up on short skills. Um, and, you know, I, I think something you had said is you've been talking about valuations and coming across a lot of companies where it's like, okay, like, you know, I've, 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 this company looks great, great business model, but oh my goodness, look at the PE or oh my goodness, look at the, um, you know, enterprise value to EBITDA or oh my goodness, like it's just, there's nothing that's good quality and cheap, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So a few things, but yeah, not, it's, it's hard. It seems in my experience, it's, it seems to be getting harder to find to find good quality names at, at a, even a reasonable price. So do you think the market as a whole then, I mean, you know, obviously you're a bottoms up guy, you're not a top down, top down guy and we've, we've said that already, but um, do you feel like the market is, is ahead of itself and sort of overheated or do you think it's just kind of how things go and, you know, it'll consolidate like we did in 2014 to 2016 and things will even out a bit? Um, I, I, I'd probably actually lean a little more towards the latter. Um, you know, I'd say I, I, it feels to me like the market is pretty fully valued. I, I you know, I don't think it's it's uh, bubbly by any means. Um, obviously, you've got other other things going on with with Bitcoin and everything else, but I think that's a whole other story. Um, but yeah, you know, in general, I think of I think for the most part, you know, stocks that I look at are, are pretty fully valued. Just you know, not we're not talking Nasdaq bubble by any means, but pretty fully valued. And, and so it's, it's hard for me to find a lot of, just a lot of upside, frankly, in a lot of the companies. And, and it's, it's also not hard to see that there is some downside for a lot of names. Without sort of plugging in really ridiculous valuations. Yep, exactly. Or, or, you know, or particularly rosy, you know, fundamental assumptions about growth and, and things like that. Right. Yeah. No, it, it's interesting to be in a sort of a late cycle environment that doesn't feel like it's close to the end of late cycle. Like, you know, you can be past early cycle, past mid cycle and still not be anywhere close to a recession. And um, yep. that I guess, you know, you don't spend too much time on macro, but it'd be interesting to get your take on the sort of U.S. and global economy as you sort of fit it into your process, because, I, you know, you do talk about it sometimes. Um, just a couple of things that I've thought have become more relevant lately. There's um, an observation from um, Urban Carmel the other day on Twitter saying, you know, industrial production's up year over year by almost 3%. Like, sorry, it's not the end of the world. Like, <laughs> we're not near a recession. <laughs> this is this is pretty basic stuff, people. And another one, uh, you know, that uh, BlackRock has done a lot of work on around how this cycle looks a lot like almost every other cycle. It's just really drawn out and extended. So, like, if you compress the time mm -hmm. as opposed to compressing the variables, like the the if you compress the x-axis instead of the y, it looks normal. The problem is it's taken a really long time to get there, and so it kind of throws people off. Um, do you have any thoughts about those sort of two? observations and sort of how that dovetails with your macro approach or your overlays yeah I, I mean I don't I don't think it um, frankly I don't uh, other than being a little biased and, and having some views uh, you know I don't think it 
it does incorporate much into my approach in terms of, um, you know, bottoms up approach. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to both of those views. I think, you know, while I mentioned the market seems pretty fully valued, um, I also, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to see that the economy is humming along pretty nicely. Um, you know, particularly in the U S. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a funny dynamic where it feels like the economy is doing really well and, um, the market's pretty fully valued, not quite bubbly. Um, so in some ways it feels like there isn't, there isn't, uh, you know, a, a whole lot to do in, in some sense. Like not taking action is, is just as hard as taking action. Yeah. Or, or just that there's not a, you know, there, there isn't any particularly big catalyst to be particularly long or particularly short, um, broadly speaking. So I would assume that you would think that way about tax cuts, for instance, this sort of topic that <laughs> has gotten so much attention this year and especially lately. And I mean, who knows? Yeah. I, I, what do you mean in, in terms of just being kind of new, neutral on the on the outlook? Yeah, just that you don't view tax cuts as a big positive um, catalyst going forward or, or negative catalyst either way. It just doesn't – it feels like – you know, it gets a lot of conversation and it should be this yeah. nice binary policy event. But it, it – I don't know. The way, the way I sort of look at both the policy process and how it's priced in the market, it feels like it's not really relevant. Like even though it gets all this yeah. attention – would you feel the same way or I, I do yeah I, I mean I my my view on I, again I don't spend tons of time thinking about tax cuts in particular but my view for some time has been that even if we do have a you know some some significant tax cut that comes through um, because of deficit limitations and just poli the politics around that in general um, I find it hard to believe that you know the actual dollars saved by companies, um, will really end up being all that material, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And I mean, I, I think you can frame it a bunch of different ways. I think there's a lot of nuance at the individual company level and even more nuance for individual people, yep. which is something that kind of gets lost. I mean, our view on it has basically been, you know, um, the bird rules in place. The Senate has 52 Republicans and, you know, getting reconciling those is going to be hard. So this is probably going to be a non-event. Like it's probably going to be a lot of fire and noise and not much actually happening, which was, has been how, you know, Congress has worked for a while, which may not actually be a bad thing. Anyhow. Um, one thing I'd really be curious to get your take on is as somebody that looks at individual companies all day long, um, when you're not out marketing, of course, uh, is where you see companies that have pricing power and where you see companies that have no pricing power but are getting crushed on the labor side because i think that from a you know i'm a macro guy so just taking a step back from a macro perspective that's sort of the big puzzle right now is like when are companies going to start exercising pricing power to protect margins under rising labor costs which is really a problem in some sectors right now um so do you see like individual companies or individual individual sectors that do have that pricing power specifically or that don't have that pricing power um hmm. it, honestly it's not a it, it's not for most of the companies in my portfolio it's not a particularly dramatic issue um you know i certainly look for companies that that have at least the ability to maintain prices over time um but yeah I, to be honest I, I don't know if i have a particularly insightful answer there well, no, it's fine. I mean, I just just curious how if the micro dovetails to the macro at all, and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> um, yeah. Do, do you have companies that you follow, maybe not necessarily have a position in, but just follow that um, are facing troubles with the labor market in terms of finding the number of people they need? Um, I, you know, I've, yeah, I mean, certainly on the restaurant side, it sounds like, um, you know, I've I've owned a few restaurants in the past, um, you know. Definitely seems like there's some pretty serious labor pressure there. Um, I also follow uh, Bright Horizons, the uh, the daycare center roll up, um, and certainly you know they they have nice they have you know labor is a huge portion of their business. Um, so far, they've been able to completely pass it through. I think just because demand is so strong for for the daycare business. Yeah, pretty tough to argue with the structural tailwinds for that one, given yeah. the demographics in the country and the priorities of people yep. sort of in our generation. Well, full, full disclosure, I, I'm when I say I follow it, I, I have a small short position <laughs> in Bright Horizons, actually. Um, you know, but partly on the thesis of of you know having a new CEO transition, some hiccups in their margins, 
um, and, and pretty full valuation. Um, well, we'll similar to, similar to blue apron, right? Like you can have a great product people want and people like, but that doesn't necessarily mean like you're a productive enterprise for investors. Right. Although I think, you know, in fairness to bright horizons, I think they have, they definitely have some competitive advantages. Um, it's a, it's, it's a pretty, I think a pretty serious, you know, value generating business. Um, but I think there are also some risks that are, are not quite being priced in today. But we'll see. It's it's a it's tough to short. Um, I've kind of gone back and forth over over the past uh, over past few years on shorting potentially great businesses, and I think you know, I definitely put Bright Horizons into the potentially great business category. Um, but I think sometimes it's sometimes it works, and we'll see here. You would rather though find a terrible business that's valued aggressively and <laughs> hit all your bases at once. Exactly. Right? Yep. <laughs> A terrible, terrible, sketchy business. Yep. So moving out to Denver from the East Coast, you lived in LA, LA previously. Um, do you think that has changed your perspective at all on around investing and around how you look at companies and how you look at the consumer and, and that sort of thing? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's changed my own investing perspective or process that much. Um I think potentially if I had gone to the buy side and stayed in New York, you know, I think I, I myself might have changed my, my investing process in a different way. Um, you know, I think it would have been much easier to get caught up in, you know, the, the sort of widespread ideas dinners and, you know, being fully plugged into to the sell side. Um, whereas out here, you know, I, I'd say I'm a little bit plugged into the sell side, but, but not really. Um, I mean, I, I generally view that as a positive thing. Um, in terms of, you know, thinking about the consumer and, and other, you know, general aspects of the economy, I think it's, it's, uh, I definitely feel a lot more connected to the real world than, uh, than living, you know, in New York city, um, as much as I, you know, I enjoyed the time in New York. Um, you know, so I think that's probably helpful, but, um, there, there are plenty of other people who, who live in the real world too. <laughs> By definition, most people I would assume. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, we like to wrap up with, uh, a segment called trading rich, trading cheap. Um, it's basically word association. So I'm just going to throw something out to you. It's not recommending people (laughs) buy or sell stocks or sectors or anything like that. It's just, you know, sort of what you think of the world. Um, so you are a Russian major. Uh, Russia has been all over the news in the past couple of years for all sorts of reasons. Um, not just the American political headlines that have, you know, sort of been the focus of the discourse around the country, but, you know, massive sell-off in the ruble when oil prices crashed that sort of stabilized inflation had been at a record high it's now sort of at a record low um we've got russian elections coming up i believe next year uh it's spring of next year um curious whether you think um whether you think all of that plays into vladimir putin trading rich or trading cheap and not that you have some sort of great expertise but i assume you know having majored in in the language you have <laughs> yep. a little bit more you know tracking of this than than most than most people on the street i, I didn't think you were going to ask about putin in particular i thought you were going to ask about russia but um you know i i would say putin is trading cheap i mean i i don't see any reason um you know that he loses power or you know becomes less uh, less potentially dangerous um Unfortunately, it's interesting because I, I was talking to another uh, to a Russian expat um, or someone whose family is Russian about this, and he said, you know, actually Putin's not as secure as you know Xi Jinping or Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, and that sort of surprised me. I like I, I didn't I I don't have any grounds to disagree with it or agree with it. I was just sort of taken mm-hmm. back by that. Um, would you Would you agree with that or disagree with that? How would you? I mean, I I, I was sort of thinking, uh, frankly, the opposite, but. You know, my, my view probably isn't isn't as informed as a as a Russian expat. Um, I I just remember, um, you know, I've been to Russia I think five or six times over the years, and I remember back in the day when Putin first came to power, how optimistic people were about him and and the changes that he could potentially put through. Um, and you know, seeing where the country has gone since then, obviously some some good things, but but a lot of a lot of bad things. I, I it's it's hard for me to to argue with the, the, the sort of bad momentum. Got it. Uh, trading rich or trading cheap, uh, indexing, index investing. Rich. <laughs> I have to say that. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think 
it's I, my my view on this is that you know even if it's trading cheap um, for the typical person, there's still room for guys like you and guys like what we do and that sort of thing. Like, mm -hmm. um, not you know you could you could have very large numbers of people being in be in index funds relative to today, and there'd still be a huge demand for total active management. So, you know, yep. it's not like they're totally mutually exclusive. Um, how do you think? Yeah. Just to well, sort of, I, I was going to say, I, yeah. I mean, I think I, I I'd say indexing is is trading rich, but probably will get richer. Um, you know, it's it's probably cliche, but you know the the idea that I, I think I think there is is a little bit of a sense that um, people forgetting that you can lose money in index products, um, even though it's a better mousetrap for most people. Um, I, I do think there's a little bit of a sense that you know that you're sort of insulated from from bad things happening, and um, at some point I think that that will you know rear its head, but it could be a while. I love trying to think out the behavioral implications of a service like Betterment, um, which I've used. Um, I mean, it's not a bad service, but just mm -hmm. um, thinking out, okay, we'll click button to sell in across a diversified portfolio of ETFs all at once, like, you know, versus at least before you had to pick up your phone to your broker to liquidate mutual funds, you know, now mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of incremental people added to the capital markets in this country are getting the experience of click to sell, which it's going to be interesting. I don't necessarily think it means that doom and gloom that I think a lot of people try to spin it as, but that's, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious to see how it all plays out. Um, yeah. uh, last one, trading rich or trading cheap, the sport of hockey. You're a hockey fan. I know. So I'm expecting <laughs> a biased answer here. So you're going to be, have to be prepared to defend it if it comes off as too, uh, one-sided. <laughs> Uh, it's extremely cheap, of course. Why is hockey extremely cheap? And I, you know, I, I, I think there's an argument to be made for this. So I'm curious to hear what you say. Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, uh, so hockey is really the only for only sport that I, I follow. And, and frankly, I don't follow it that closely, at least not as closely as I used to. Um, but I, you know, I still play and, um, I'm, I'm extremely biased in, in terms of thinking it's the greatest sport in the world. Um, and and obviously think that it gets no respect and you know from ESPN or or anywhere else it's usually uh, listed I think fourth or fifth in terms of major sports um, you know but I obviously I, I think it's a great sport I, I I love the the skating aspect and the speed and the the intensity uh, all around. Do you think that it's at risk of its own concussion issues like the NFL has suffered, um, like boxing suffered in the past? I mean, especially for enforcers, like you can't tell me that there's a big difference between, you know, fighting a lot and slamming into the boards all the time and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. what goes on in NFL front sevens. I, you know, I, I don't know if I've seen stats on this, but my sense is fighting has come down a lot in the NHL. Um, so I think certainly fighting probably goes away at some point for the most part. Um, and again, I haven't seen stats on this, but my, my sense is that the concussion issue is, it's definitely an issue for hockey, but I think much less so than the NFL doesn't, it seems like it's a, it's a lot more avoidable just, just given the way the sport is played. Um, I think the big concussions in hockey have tended to come from just outright dirty hits you know, somebody putting an elbow to the face um, or blindsiding someone else and intentionally the, targeting the The Bertuzzi head. hit back in the day. Oh, I, yeah. I grew up in British Columbia, so I don't know if you remember that one. I do. But, uh, <laughs> there's a defenseman for the Vancouver Canucks who came up behind a guy, and I, I can't remember who it was he did it to. But it, I think like, it was Donald. You know, he skated up behind him. Donald Brashear, was it? Uh, it sounds like could be right. I, I don't know. Um, skates up behind him and just – haymaker punch to the side of the head from behind total cheap shot and the guy nearly died yeah. i mean it was he was he was out cold before he hit the ice and it's just like wow that that's not great but i think that's a pretty minority you know obviously for people that don't follow hockey that's not representative of the sport i would no. say that even as someone that's not a huge hockey fan <laughs> so and we've got the winter olympics coming up and i love the international game so uh that'll be fun we got that coming up this winter yep Alrighty. So that about wraps it up. Uh, George Lovettis, uh, thanks so much for coming on and talking about Upslope Capital and talking about what you do. And as I said before throughout the interview, um, there will be links to different stuff from your website in the post about this. And you are at Upslope Capital Management on Twitter. Is that? Uh, uh, Upslope Capital, at Upslope Capital. At yep. up 
at Upslope Capital. You should definitely follow George and keep an eye on what he's doing with the stuff he puts out. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, George. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.